Hello and welcome to the Renaissance Polymath. I'm your host, Toby Gagnon, and on this episode, I would like to discuss the National Firearms Act. Let's go ahead and get things started. To close out the topic of firearms and firearm ownership, I wanted to take some time to explain the National Firearms Act, subsequent laws, what is covered, and dispel some myths and misconceptions surrounding it. I believe it is more important to have the facts and the truth than anything else, including perpetuating lies and misinformation. Let's start with the act itself and subsequent laws created. The National Firearms Act took effect on July 26, 1934 by the 73rd United States Congress. It was a backdoor and rushed law that was directly aimed at making it prohibitively expensive to legally own and also keep a registry of certain firearms based on their physical characteristics and abilities. Additional items that were not directly firearms were also included in this act, like silencers, poisonous gases, explosives, etc. While legally repealed, many provisions of the National Firearms Act of 1934 and also the Federal Firearms Act of 1938 were reenacted with the Gun Control Act of 1968. This was further amended in 1993 to, among other things, define prohibited persons and mandate a background check be performed by all licensed sellers. Finally, the Firearms Owners Protection Act of 1986 provided some revisions to these laws, but also enacted some additional restrictions. So while most of us refer to such laws as the NFA, it would be more accurate to say the GCA, or the Gun Control Act, which was enacted in 1968. From here forward, that's how I'll refer to it, the GCA. While the federal law is one of the most often referred to, states have the authority to enact their own laws, and a few have chosen to exploit this to further restrict the constitutional rights of the citizens who reside there. I want to be very clear. It is not illegal for an ordinary citizen to legally own and use items like automatic firearms, silencers, short-barreled rifles, and other, quote, destructive devices, or, quote, any other weapons provided they don't reside in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Illinois, California, or Hawaii, as those states have draconian laws prohibiting such things. However, ownership of these items can be extremely expensive. As mentioned previously, these laws have the primary purpose to make it too expensive for regular citizens to be able to legally obtain the specified items. This was done by imposing an excise tax on the items in the amount of $200 each item. To clarify, that is a $200 additional tax on top of sales tax and other taxes each time an item is sold or transferred. However, the Firearms Owners Protection Act of 1986, FOPA, also made it illegal to manufacture or import any automatic firearms after the date of an action, except for specially licensed entities for experimental purposes. This means that the supply of those items that were available for sale for the private citizens could never be increased, though the demand likely would. Anyone with even a basic understanding of economics would understand that this means those items would exponentially grow in value. As an example, an AR-patterned rifle capable of automatic fire would sell for approximately $400 before 1986. The cost of buying one today, however, would be approximately $15,000 and likely more 
Keep in mind, that would be for a legally registered receiver that is at least 35 years old, used, possibly beat up, and may even not be functional. Let me take you through the process of legally purchasing and taking possession of items regulated by the GCA. First, you will need to decide whether you will be purchasing an item and registering it in your name, or if you're going to register the item in a legal entity like a trust. There are pros and cons to each of these methods, and I'm not a lawyer offering any kind of legal advice, so I would encourage you to do some more research on what would be best for your situation. As we continue, I'll explain, explain the process for a trust, as that is the only with which I have firsthand experience. Next, you will need to research and find a place that is licensed by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, or we'll call them the ATF from here on out, to legally transfer these items. They will need to be an FFL-09 or FFL-10 dealer, meaning they can legally sell and manufacture destructive devices, devices respectively. Just because an entity is licensed to sell firearms does not necessarily mean they are licensed to sell items subject to GCA regulations. Next, you will need to determine which item you want to purchase. As with most things, items like these can be purchased online, but the paperwork process won't begin until the item is transferred to the dealer you chose in the previous step. I strongly encourage going to demo days that are put on by certain manufacturers because there really isn't a try-before-you-buy option otherwise, and you'll likely be investing a lot, both time and money, into the item, and you want to make sure it's going to fit your needs. Once you pay for the item in full, including an applicable sales tax, you will be required to fill out an ATF Form 4 for a transfer of an item already registered or an ATF Form 1 if it's an item being created and registered for the first time with the ATF. You must submit that paperwork along with fingerprints and a photograph for every person listed as a trustee in the trust in duplicate. So two for everybody. The paperwork, along with the $200 excise tax, must be mailed first class through the USPS. Upon completion of all of these steps, you then wait. And I do mean wait. Wait for what? Well, you have to wait for the ATF to process the paperwork, input the data into their systems, perform a background check on all the people who had to file that paperwork, process the payment for the tax imposed, approve everything, and mail the appropriate documentation back to the dealer. My first Form 4, which is a transfer, i.e. I purchased something that was already in existence, took over 385 days, over a year. The most recent purchase that I made took just over eight months from the time I sent in the paperwork to the time I got it back approved. Once the dealer informs you of the approval, you then have to go pick it up. Kind of. You first have to fill out a Form 4473, same as you would as if you were buying a firearm and go through yet another background check. Then, and only then, will you be allowed to legally take possession of your, quote, destructive device. Of course, it's a good idea to have a copy, both physical or electronic maybe, accessible to prove legality should you ever be challenged on it. A quick comment that it may or may not be legal for certain persons to require proof of legality, as the ATF currently falls under the Department of Justice supervision and previously fell under the Internal Revenue System supervision. That means it could be treated similarly to tax information and your Fourth Amendment rights may come into play. But again, 
I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice. So let me summarize this episode. It'll be a really quick one. In my opinion, the NFA, FFA, GCA, and FOPA are all unconstitutional. The Second Amendment to the United States Constitution is absolute, and any law or regulation enacted that limits the rights of the private citizen should be viewed as unconstitutional and thus not be worth the ink or the paper it is writ with or upon. Having said that, laws and regulations only apply to those who are law-abiding to begin with and thus will do little, if anything at all, to reduce, prevent, or eliminate such crimes. Short-barreled rifles, short-barreled shotguns, silencers, machine guns, and the like are not illegal to own unless you reside in one of the eight states I mentioned that already make it illegal by the private citizen. The process, while very paperwork-heavy, expensive, and time-consuming, is relatively simple and should not discourage anyone from pursuing ownership of these regulated items. Additionally, it has been proven time and time again in legal proceedings that the verbiage of, quote, common use was critical and instrumental in giving citizens their rights back and limiting the scope and power of these laws and regulations. This means the more that people purchase and use these items for fun, sporting, and other non-criminal purposes, are the more likely a court would be to find them applicable under the common use precedent and increase the chances of them being deregulated. Well, that about wraps up this episode. But again, as I always say, I would encourage you to do your own continued research and education. I'll make sure to link to the things I discussed in this episode in the show notes. On the next episode, I will be discussing my COVID experience. If you have any feedback, feel free to send me an email at podcast at therenpo.com. That's T-H-E-R-E-N-P-O.com. I would also appreciate it if you left a review wherever you podcast. That helps this show be discoverable to others and helps me understand where things can be improved. Don't forget to subscribe and auto-download new episodes so you don't miss any of the future topics. Thank you for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode.